be in the house of the Lord. Man, it is uh, such a blessing today to be able to share with you uh, from the word of the Lord. It's been a while since I've had the opportunity to preach and teach, and I love doing this. So I'm excited to jump into it. We're actually kicking off a new series today entitled Relate, and I want to encourage you to grab your note sheet. Hopefully you receive one on your way through the door. Grab that note sheet. Grab a, a pen. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. If you look at the very top of that note sheet, there is a blank line with a question mark. And here's the question that I want you to fill in, okay? Because uh, this is a question that we're going to be asking over the next three weeks. Uh, the question is this, how well do I relate? How well do I relate? I want you to make this personal, okay? These next three weeks are going to be a time for uh, some introspection. We're going to talk over these next three weeks. We're going to ask this question. First of all, how do I relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How do I uh, relate to those that are around me today? Am I uh, acting in the way that God calls me to act with my brothers and sisters in this room? And then next week we're going to talk about how do I relate to authority, both to godly authority and ungodly authority, because there is a different way that we relate to both of those. And finally, week three, we're going to ask the question, how do I relate to those closest to me in my household, okay? And so we've got a lot of work to do over these next three weeks, but I, I trust God is going to use this time uh, to grow us. Amen? Amen? Now, before we jump into it, let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. Lord God, we thank you that it is living and active. Lord God, we thank you today that we don't approach a dead word, but a living word. Believe today, even as we open it, even as we dig into it, Lord, that you desire to speak to your people. And so, Holy Spirit, uh, we would just say, have your way this morning. Lord God, would you uh, tear down any walls, any barriers that we put up that would prevent us from hearing what, what you desire to speak today. Lord, may our hearts be open to receive. We don't want to leave here the same way. Lord God, we want you to do something in this time, and we believe you can do something in this time that will change us us for eternity. And so we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now in our discipleship uh, journey so far, we've been talking a lot about who God is and how we respond to who God is. And most recently we spent four weeks talking about hearing the voice of God. And Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, right? I love that verse because it is uh, this mutual recognition. My sheep hear my voice, but I also know them. It speaks there of a relationship. And here's a truth that's going to kind of form the foundation, but it, it's a truth that is seen throughout Scripture again and again, and it's this. Our God is a relational God. Let me say that again. Our God is a relational God. Our God knows how to relate perfectly with everyone. The story of Scripture begins with God, right? In the beginning, God. And understand this, even before the garden was created, God was in relationship. He, not with mankind, but he was in relationship with himself. Understand that even before the creation of man, God was relating within the Trinity. God the Father loved and served the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loved and served the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loved and served the Father and the Son. And so this idea of Relating and relationship is actually an expression of the Godhead. Relationship exists at the core of who God is, and it tells us what he values the most. Now, why did 
in relationship? Why did he create mankind? There are, there are some who think and wrongly think that God was out there and he was just lonely, right? But can I just tell you, God did not create mankind because he was lonely. God is not like your dog that waits by the door for you to come home. He's not like your cat that could care less if you're home or not, right? God is a relator. In fact, he is the ultimate relator. Again, relationship exists at the core of who God is, and it tells us what he values the most. We know this, that God is eternal. He's always existed. He has no beginning, and he has no end. And yet, the world was created at a specific point in time. And so, before he created the world, God was not lonely. He was actually in perfect fellowship. God does not need a relationship with us in order to somehow complete him. I don't know if you remember the movie Jerry Maguire. Anybody remember that movie? Renee Zellweger, Tom Cruise. The most amazing thing about that movie is it came out in 1996, and Tom Cruise still looks the same today. You know, tell him exactly the same, right? But, but there's a point in that movie when Jerry Maguire, right, he expresses feelings for this woman, Dorothy, and he says this. He says, you complete me. Remember that? You complete me. And she says, what did she say? You had me at hello, right? It's like, oh, it's so romantic, right? You complete me. Can I just tell you, that's what the world says is romance. You complete me. But i got to be honest today, it's actually very draining. Young people, I would encourage you, don't marry someone who needs you to complete them. Because the reality is you never could, and you're going to kill yourself trying. You'll end up frustrated trying to do something you were never created to do. Marriage actually works best when two whole people, right, two people who are both whole in Christ themselves come together. Amen? And, and, and here's the reality. When we talk about relationships, the strongest relationships come not out of a place of need, but out of a place of desire. Understand this about our relationship with Jesus Christ. He doesn't need us. We don't complete him. He doesn't need a relationship with you and I, and yet he desires a relationship with you and I. Scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, that's his relationship with you and I, he endured the cross. You see, in order to relate intimately with us, God sent his son Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God as a man. He showed us what the Father looks like. And he calls us into a relationship with him. But he also demonstrated for us how to relate to those around us. How did Jesus love others? He loved them to the point that he laid down his life for them. John 15, 13, maybe you know this verse. It says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. How well did Jesus relate to others when he walked on the earth? He walked in grace. He walked in humility. He walked in forgiveness and mercy. He treated those around him with honor, and he always looked for ways that he could serve them. He encouraged people he met. He cared for them. He ministered to their deepest need. Jesus surrounded himself with a, a group of misfits, right, that became his disciples, and he called these men friends, but it cost him something to do that because everyone looked at that relationship and they said, man, this guy is a friend of sinners. And here's the thing. When we respond to what Jesus has done for us on the cross, our relationship with God is restored. We can have a right relationship with the God of all eternity. Again, he doesn't need us, but he desires to be in a relationship with us. 
But if we receive that invitation to be in right relationship with God, then we also need to understand that the moment we accept that invitation, we become members of God's household, right? If you were adopted into a family that already has children, guess what? You get brothers and sisters, right? It's, it's kind of a package deal. You can't say, I want to join the family. I want parents, but I don't want siblings, right? It, it, it all comes together. And, and can I just say, as members of God's household, we have spiritual siblings. Look around this morning. There's your brothers and sisters in this room, right? brothers and sisters in this room. What does that mean? It means that we belong to a multicultural, interracial, international, eternal family. Listen, the world wants to figure out how to deal with racism and discrimination, how to deal with hate in our world, but the only way to deal with those things is to first come into a right relationship with God. Hear me today. I, I cannot have a right relationship with you if this relationship with God isn't right first. Amen? And and I can't say that I have a right relationship with God if my relationship with you isn't right. 1 John 4.20 says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, what does it say? That person is a liar. For if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? We're going to focus on relationships for the next few weeks because So many people have this wrong perspective that spirituality is just between them and God, right? Like, I just get along with God. It's just just me and and God. And as long as this relationship is right, the rest of the relationships in my life can look like garbage. It doesn't matter, right? I'm I'm right with God. I don't care what you think about me. Can I just tell you this morning, uh, that's not biblical. It's not biblical, and it's actually ungodly. The way that we relate to others, especially those in this room, is so very important. Let me say that again. The way that we relate to others in this room is important. In fact, outside of our relationship to God, there's no more important related relationships than those that are here today. And and the relationships in this room, they're not a light thing. They're not a trivial thing. They have eternal consequences. Jesus said in John 13 that the way that the world would recognize that we belong to him would be by the way that we treat each other. John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He says, here's the standard by which you love each other, the way that I loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love you understand how important this is, the relationships with one another? It's no wonder that the enemy works so hard in our lives to try to steal and kill and destroy relationships. And here's what you'll find if you really dig into any problem in your life. Just about every problem that we face in the world is a relationship problem. Sin, pride, selfishness, independence, or rebellion, hurt in our lives, right? All of these things hinder our attempts to have meaningful relationships. When we talk about the discipleship process, we're talking about growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. Understand that God uses relationships in the process of growth in our lives. We're not meant to do this on our own. Scripture says that iron sharpens iron, right? So one man sharpens another man. How many of you know when iron hits iron, sparks fly, right? And sometimes in our relationships, sparks fly, right? 
But yet, if we understand this, that God has placed us together, and by His Spirit, He's brought us into a place of unity. And so I want to focus today on what it means to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are one body, one Spirit, called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all. And so it is our responsibility, each of us here today, to maintain the unity and the peace, to maintain the oneness that God has given us. Again, when we come to God, He restores not just our relationship with Him, He restores our relationships with others. And if we're walking by the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God will bring unity. Amen? I love this quote by the great preacher A.W. Tozer. He said this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, oh, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. What is, what is he saying here? He's saying that the way to have unity in the body of Christ is not to look away from God and to look at each other and say, man, what, what do we have in common? Or how, how can we be united? Rather, it is about all of us tuning our spirits to what God's spirit is saying. Amen? To what he's saying. He, he, that's the way that we have unity. And if we're all listening to God, if we're all in tune with the spirit of God, then there we will be in tune with each other. And, and so today I want to talk about some ways that we can stay in tune within the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about relationships in, in his 13 letters, but specifically in Romans chapter 12, you can turn there, we find a, a number of foundational principles for healthy relationships with other believers. And so I want you to write these down. I want you to be mindful of these today. Romans chapter 12, beginning there in verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The first key to walking in unity, the first pillar, if you will, of godly relationships is this. It is a renewed mind renewed mind. When we talk about relationships in the church, when you talk about relationships in the kingdom of God, they're based on a different set of values than those that we've experienced maybe in our family of origin or in the world. When we come to Christ, God wants us to, to view our relationships here through a different lens. And so Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. In other words, don't be pressed into the mold of this world. Instead, be transform. The Greek word for change or transform is metanoia, okay? It's where we get the, the word metamorphosis, right? It, it describes a process of change by renewing or, or changing our, our thoughts to God's perspective. Now, what is the mind? It, it's really the organ by which we perceive, right? It's the way that we look at life. And so, as we allow the Spirit of God access to our lives, every area of our lives, He begins to change the way that we look at life. And when it comes 
comes to relating to others, you need to allow God to renew your mind or change your thinking about other people. You, you need the Holy Spirit to help you to, to value them as much as He values them. Yes, your relationship with God is primary, but what comes right after that? I mean, right after that is the way that you relate with others. Jesus said it in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus replied, "You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." He said, "This is the first and the greatest commandment." And a second is what does it say? Equally important. He's saying this is on on the same level. You have to love your neighbor as yourself, and so. We need to have a renewed mind in order to relate well with each other. We also need grace. That's the second one, grace. Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Because God's grace has been freely given to us, we as believers have the privilege of extending that same grace through our lives to others. We talked about grace not too long ago, right? We said grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, right? And so in godly relationships, grace is giving to others regardless of whether we think that they deserve it or not. Think about how God responds to your failures. I know my life has responded with a lot of grace, right? to those failures, to my shortcomings. If you think about it, all of our failures are usually because of need. We fail to make the right choices because we need wisdom, right? Scripture says we can ask and God gives it liberally, but sometimes we just lack wisdom, right? We we fail to complete something because we need strength and we, we don't have that strength. And so grace uses words to build others up according to their needs. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Sometimes we need to think before it comes out of our mouth. Is, is this going to be helpful, right? He says, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Your words can give grace to somebody who stands in the place of need. You've probably heard it said that hurt people hurt people. But I also believe it's true today that healed people heal people. Amen. Healed people heal people. And if we've been healed by the Spirit of God at work in our lives, we can offer healing to others in a place of need. The next pillar is humility. Humility. Let me say this. Pride destroys relationships. Humility builds healthy relationships. Pride says... In order to be in a relationship with me, you, you need to be like me. You need to think like me. You, you need to act like me. Why? Because I'm right, obviously, right? But humility accepts others the way they are. Humility accepts other perspectives. Can I just say, it's crazy that the way this discussion around vaccines, okay, is actually destroying even families right now. I've had discussions where families aren't even talking to each other or, or cut each other off because of different perspectives on a COVID vaccine. And, and it's pride saying, I need you to think like me and I need you to act like me in order to be around me. Now, I, ha- 
haven't said much regarding all of this. This whole topic to me has just become so politically charged, so divisive. Like even now, I, I feel the tension in the room. You're like, Pastor, don't go there. <laughs> Can we all just breathe for a moment? Right? I got to tell you, it's my conviction that the pulpit, that this place is a place for preaching the Word of God. And I never want politics to inform my theology. I, I think that's completely the wrong way to frame out your worldview. Politics should not inform your theology, but your theology, your understanding of God from studying His words, should absolutely inform your political views, okay? It should. It should form the way that you think and the way that you vote, all right? This understanding for me is why I don't give this pulpit over to politicians, okay? From time to time, we will have politicians that visit. We'll recognize them. We'll let them know we're, we're praying for them because I think that's biblical. But as long as some believe pastor here, a politician, especially a politician who's not a believer, is not going to preach from this pulpit, okay? Someone who is not a Christian is not going to have the opportunity to stand up here and make theological statements based off of their political party's views. Now, why am I saying that? Because I, I feel very strongly I need to speak to some of you this morning. Last Sunday, the governor of our state was given a place in a pulpit at a very large church in our city. And as a politician, she made a theological statement. And so I want to respond to that theological statement, okay? To the congregation that she spoke to last week, Governor Hockle, said this, and I quote, I, she said, I know you're all vaccinated, you're the smart ones, but you know there's people out there who aren't listening to God and what God says. So basically she's saying this, obedience to God looks like this, insert political viewpoint. And if you're not doing this, insert my political viewpoint, you're not listening to God and what God wants. Can I just tell you that whole statement reeks of pride? When it comes to the vaccine, here's my perspective. I trust that each one of you here are adults. I trust that you can make it informed. I hope you do your research. I trust that you can make a, a prayerful decision. I hope you're praying about it, right? And, and so some of you this morning in this room have the conviction, hey, you know what? This is right for me. That's what I'm going to do. It's right for me. It's right for my family. Others of you, you say, this is not right for me. And that's fine. Listen, some of your brothers and sisters in this room, I've had discussions this week that walked away from jobs this past week because of convictions that this decision is not for them. They're not going to make that decision. And they, they don't make that lightly. That's a tough decision that requires a lot of prayer and a lot of faith. And so if you see things differently, please don't tell your brother or sister that they're not praying for God. It could be today. Can, can we trust that God speaks? And can we trust that there's different decisions that need to be made in, in the midst of this? And our political perspective should never inform the way that, that we approach God's word. Well, you, you may say, well, pastor, you speak out against abortion all the time. Can I just say, that's not a political viewpoint. My view on life in the womb is informed from scripture, not from politics. Okay? My political stance on abortion comes from my understanding of the word of God, which I think is very clear that, that life in the womb is precious. For me to ever say, unless you think exactly like me on an extra biblical topic you're not hearing from God. It would be wrong and it would be full of pride. I have yet to find a scripture that says be thou vaccinated. Just saying, okay? You take it to prayer. You do your research and you make that decision led by the Spirit of God. 
But here's the thing, when, when pride comes into the picture, not only do we not accept different views, when I'm walking in pride, I, can, I need you to be like me, I need you to think like me. Pride is the root of all prejudice. Really, it's what keeps us from branching out in our relationships. I want to hang out with people just like me because I don't want to change the way I think and I don't want to be challenged in, in my viewpoints. But when we can recognize this, that our differences, even in the body of Christ, and we can live with humility that allows us to walk with a godly dependence on each other. You may have something to say that could actually inform my life and my decisions, right? Humility allows me to hear that. And so I pray that God would keep us, church, from independence. He would keep us from from independence. We're, We're all different, but understand, we are all one body, each of us a member of God's family. We belong to all the others, and we have far more in common than that which would desire to pull us apart. Amen? And so we need to think of ourselves, Scripture says here, with sober judgment. It means to think of ourselves in reality of who we are in the context of of everyone else. It means this morning accepting who you are, but also who you're not. And that will affect the way that you view others. Personality conflicts. You say, oh, it's just a personality conflict. Usually it's there because we lack humility, right? But when humility is present in a relationship, I can really admit when I'm wrong and you're right. If we walk in humility, peace will always be a byproduct, okay? You see, without humility, we can't extend forgiveness. Without humility, we can't trust and we can't understand. And so when there is humility in our lives and in our relationships, it creates an openness and it allows for teachability. There is a, a flexibility in the relationship rather than a stubbornness of this is the way that it has to be. When we walk in humility with others, we can receive correction, right, without needing to defend ourselves or needing to always be right. When we walk in humility, we're able also to follow those who have been placed in authority and put positions to lead us. The next one is love. All we need is love, right? All you need is love. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. When we talk about love, know this, love is not a feeling, love is a choice. Okay? Sometimes my wife doesn't feel like loving me. Okay? And sometimes I don't feel like loving her, but we choose to love each other, right? Love is choosing someone else's highest good. Jesus says, love God above everything else, but he also says, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and here's the amazing thing. God will never command us to do something that he won't give us the ability by his Holy Spirit to do. And so when he calls us to love, he also gives us the ability to love. And Paul says here, love should be genuine or it should be sincere. In other words, it should be without hypocrisy. In the Greek, the word hypocrite referred to an actor who put on a mask and played a part. Listen, we're not called just to act lovingly. We're called to to love, right? To sincerely and genuinely love one another. To be devoted to one another. Biblical love is is a giving love. It's a a self-sacrificing love. Biblical love serves others. The next one is honor. Honor. Now, I know I said there's 12 pillars, but there's actually 11 spaces. There's two in one space you'll see it in just a bit. Okay, honor. Outdo one another in showing honor, verse 9. Outdo one another in showing honor. The kingdom of God is built on this principle 
of mutually honoring one another. What is honor? It's recognizing another person's value or worth. We can honor people because of their performance, right? We can recognize what they've done or what they've achieved. We can honor someone because of their character. We say, man, I, I really like who you are or who you've become. But in the kingdom of God, we're also called to honor others because of their inherent value and worth. And this value, this worth, it isn't something that's earned, it's given by God. And so we honor others because we recognize that that, that individual, whoever they are, has eternal worth in the sight of God. As a church, we recognize, again, that all life is sacred, from the womb to the tomb, amen? Life in the womb is sacred, not because of performance. We can't see that baby doing anything, right? Not because of, of character. We don't see that character yet, but because that life is made in the image of God, and therefore that life is worthy of honor. It has inherent value. And so to destroy that life is to dishonor that life, and I would say ultimately to dishonor the creator of that life. And now here's two and one. The next two are joy and patience. We need to be a pillars of, of our godly relationships. Joy and patience. Verse 12, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Let me read that again. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Want strong relationships? Rejoice. Okay, very simple. You, you want to have friends? Be joyful. Okay, people are jo- are drawn to those who live a life of joy. When you live in joy and patience, you're going to bring encouragement to those around you. But if you're always frustrated and you're always impatient, you will suck the life out of the relationships that God has given to you. Paul says here we need to be patient in the midst of affliction. Right. We all know that there are times in life where joy comes naturally, right? But there's also times in life where we face difficulties. But when we can be patient in the midst of difficulty, it not only expresses our, our trust in God, but it also demonstrates a love for others. Okay, I'm not going to lose it here because I care about you and I care about this relationship, right? When things are not going my way, I can still be patient, and that's loving to you. Next one is prayer. He says, be constant in prayer. Do you pray about your relationships? It's a good question, right? I, I hope you do. Do you pray for those that you're in a relationship with? You see, when you do that, it creates a spiritual bond with those you're in a relationship with. When I pray for those that God has told me to do life with, it actually allows me to carry their burdens, and it gives me an opportunity to hear from God on their behalf, right? pray, God, would you just give me a word for so-and-so? Would you uh, give me something that, that I could encourage them with right now? Would you give me a word that would build them up? As I'm praying for others, God can do that through my life. Next one is sharing. Sharing is key to friendship. We all learn that in kindergarten, right? Sharing, right? you got to learn to share. In our God-given relationships, we have the opportunity to partner with others in order to see their needs met. God has entrusted each one of us in this room with, with different resources, okay, that we can share with others. But in order to share with someone in need, you have to know them well enough to actually know what their need is, right? Have you ever come across somebody said, oh, man, I needed this, and so I went out and bought it. You're like, man, I had that. I, I could have just given it to you, man. I had five of those, right? I could have given it to you, right? 
but in order to know other people's needs, we need to be in a relationship with them. Show hospitality, right? That, that means to open your home to those who need help or encouragement or ministry. The next one is blessing. Verse 14, bless those who bless you. Is that what it says? What does it say? Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Why does he say that? Because he knows our natural reaction to those who persecute us is to curse them, right? And what Paul is saying here, he's saying the same words that Jesus said in Matthew 5.44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, why does God call us to bless those who persecute us? It's so that they might see who God really is. Listen, when you respond to cursing with cursing, God's not seeing you. Okay? When that guy cuts you off and gives you the finger and you respond in some similar manner, okay? God's not seen in that situation. It's why we don't have church bumper stickers. I don't trust you guys enough yet out there on the road, right? I don't want something bad to happen. Like, oh, grace point, great. But think about this. The world says you respond to cursing with cursing, right? I, I just do to them what they did to me, pastor. And so when someone wrongs us, we respond the same way world responds to them, but as the people of God, we are supposed to come and respond in the opposite spirit. We respond to a curse with blessing, right? That guy flips you off, cuts you off, you pray for him for the next five miles, right? Right? God, obviously something's going on in that guy's life, right? Would you just meet him today wherever he's at, right? Godly relationships also require this. Here's two more. Understanding and trust. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoicing is easy, right? It's easy to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But weeping, it takes something more to enter into those hurt places, those wounded places in people's lives. And, and understanding and trust, it requires us to identify with people where they're at, to connect and to understand them. One of the most basic needs that every one of us has in this room is the need to be understood. When I'm understood, man, I don't feel the need to justify myself. You, you understand what I'm going through, right? But people are not going to feel understood unless they can open up their lives to you, and they're not going to do that unless they trust you. So trust is necessary in godly relationships. And finally, harmony. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. I love that word harmony. It just sounds good, right? Live in harmony with one another. You know, the greatest obstacle
God is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe, believe this. Commit it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I used to read that verse. I'm like, yeah, burning coals on your head, right? That's the wrong attitude, okay? He says, do not be overcome by evil. Corinthians chapter 11. I love this passage because Paul's speaking here to a very dysfunctional church in Corinth, okay? And I love this passage because he doesn't pull any punches. Verse 17. He's going to begin to talk about the Lord's Supper. We're going to partake of it in just a moment. He says this, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. How horrible, right? It seems like things are worse when you get together on Sunday morning, right? Because first I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent I believe that. But of course there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Verse 20, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Or in that time when they would come together to do what we refer to as communion or the Lord's Supper, it wasn't just this. church would come together and they would have a meal together. But the church at that time, there were so many different socioeconomic levels. And so there were some people that would bring their meal and it was filet mignon that. And the filet mignon was over at this table and they're enjoying the filet mignon and saying, well, let's, let's eat it before I have to share it with those people, right? I don't want to have to share it with them. And so there were these divisions in the church and there was this thinking of us versus them. And he says this, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you have hurried to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some grow hung, go hungry while others get drunk. He's saying there's some in the body that have tremendous need while others of you, man, you're gluttons. You got everything. You got more than enough. He says, what? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame it? What am I supposed to say, he says? Do you want me to praise you? I certainly will not praise you for this. Verse 27. He says, so anyone who eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily, in other words, in an unworthy manner, is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself 
Christ. What is the body of Christ? This is the body of Christ. This, 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 is, this is the church, right? If you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, that's the unworthy manner where I don't honor you, I don't honor the body. Listen, if you take communion like that, say it's all about me and God. of God that's extended upon your life. And when you come together to remember what Christ has done for you, examine what you're doing to your brother and sister. He says, wait, wait for each other. Why? Because some that's all about me and God. Can I just tell you, the relationships in this room are dysfunctional. And we cannot come and, and, and just receive the bread and receive the cup and say, I'm right with God when I'm dishonoring others in this room. So would you stand with Just dishonoring in the way that, that I live. 